This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Welcome everyone to the Australian Museum and more importantly welcome to this session of five things where we're going to be talking to you about native plants. It's fantastic to have you all here. As Liz has been saying we're actually sold out even though the room isn't full. Um, so it's great to have you here for a nice intimate event today. Um, we're on Gadigal country under a Gadigal sky surrounded by the waterways of the Gadigal. So I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we gather today. Um, we pay our respects to Gadigal elders and acknowledge that this is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, if you are interested in expanding your First Nations knowledge while you're here at the museum, um, I'd invite you to have a look at some of our galleries, our First Nations galleries here. We've got two permanent galleries on this level, so they're actually just outside the theatre on this side. If you take the entry from this end behind me, Gary Garang will introduce you to sea country. There's an entry at the opposite end um, of Hintsey Hall down this direction. Um, Bayala Nura is yarning country. Inside the entrance to the gallery at this end, there's a map of Indigenous Australia. I've got that map on the wall in my office, but the one in the gallery is massive. So it's absolutely fantastic to go and have a look at that. So I'd invite you to go and have a look at those galleries. Um, my name's Julie Elmers. I'm the Associate Director of the Australian Museum Research Institute. So we have a research institute here at the museum. I'm the branch head of our Life and Geosciences branch. So my teams look after all of our natural science collections here at the museum, which are absolutely enormous in, in scale. So that runs all the way from the tiniest insect to the biggest whale skeleton and everything in between. Um, despite the fact that I take care of all of those animals, um, I actually have a background in botany, which is perfect for today because we're here to talk about native plants and gardening. Um, but it's not just about gardening, we're also here to talk about climate change. And our special guest today will be passing on five tips to you today about reintroducing and, um, and fostering native plants in your gardens. And by doing that, you'll be contributing to combating climate change, which is something that is very dear to our hearts here at the Australian Museum. Um, we're gonna have microphones on today, which is not because we need to project our voices so much as we're hoping to record the session today. Um, and have that audio up on our website afterwards. Um, so hopefully that's not putting you off. Um, we should have time for questions, assuming we can keep on track for time at the end of the session. And afterwards we have scones and tea in Hintsey Hall. You would have come through Hintsey Hall to get here. And I believe we have a, a small gift for each of you as well. Um, so in my job, I'm blessed to work with research scientists from all around Australia and the world, but it's not every day that I get to sit down and have a conversation with a professional dancer. So Clarence Lockie is a man of many talents. He's a proud Bundjalung man. Most of you would know him as one of the present presenters on the ABC's Gardening Australia program. He's also a graduate of the UTS Business School, and he's founder and director of JIWA, which is a company that focuses on um, creating land, culturally um, sensitive landscapes and design. Um, as I alluded to, he's also a dancer and performer and has traveled all around the world performing to audiences in Paris and Beijing and America. And I hear he's also pretty good on the didgeridoo. Um, I don't know if we'll get to see that today. So please join me in welcoming Clarence Lockie. Oh, thank you, everyone. I better put my thing back on. I, I, I haven't danced for a while, so. <laughs> You've lost your mic in, uh, in giving us a dance move. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I too would like to acknowledge that we are on Gadigal country. Um, and even though it's not my language group, it is a really annoying thing to hear people say, the Gadigal people. You don't have to say ATM machine. 
<laughs> Automatic teller machine, ATM. Personal identification number, PIN. Don't have to say PIN number. Don't have to say ATM machine. You don't have to say Gadigal people because the GAL in the Sydney language is the clan or group of Gadi, the place, Gadigal, Birabiragal. All of these GLs, Baramadigal. Everyone knows the Baramadigal from Baramada? Yeah, excellent. Um, but as uh, Julie said, I'm a Bundjalung follower. So in my language, we just make it nice and easy. We just say, Jingiwala. That's it. How you going? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, but yeah, it, um, we can make it a bit more formal. So, Jingiwala. Garo Bana, Garo Nanan. Bugaluina. G'day to all my brothers and sisters. I hope this day finds you in good health. Nice and, yeah, it's just rolls off the tongue, really. Um, but yeah, we have over 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, language groups, and I certainly want to acknowledge that we are on Gadigal country. And as a Bundjalung follower, I am absolutely honoured to be on Gadigal country and talking about lots of different things. Five things, really, not lots, but five. <laughs> we'll try and stick to five. We'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. Well, there you go. I've just learnt something new myself. Thank you for that. Um, and actually, it turns out, Clarence, that we both currently live in Darawal country. Yeah. Um, but you grew up in Bundjalung country. So, you know, can you tell us exactly where that is and tell us about growing up in that part of the world? Yeah. Um, look, I'll, I'll look at here. It, it, even though Julie's asking the questions, you know, I've, sort of, I've got to you know, look around the room. But, um, it, it, oh, anyone want to tell me where Bundjalung country is? Yes. Ballina, yeah, it's kind of in the middle, yes. Ballina. Grafton, yeah, still there. Grafton is right on, it, it's, yeah, you're from Grafton? Oh, I've just come back from Grafton. <laughs> So the, um, it, uh, which is, we, we don't want to get too, too far off track because we've got to keep a very tight time. But the um, Jacaranda Festival, of course, you know, um, everyone loves the Jacaranda. And they say in Sydney, at least, if you haven't started studying for your HSC by the time the Jacarandas flower, you're in trouble. <laughs> well, kids, you're in big trouble this year because the Jacarandas have only just started flowering. <laughs> so, so there's, uh, Bundjalung, strangely enough, it starts at uh, the Clarence River, um, runs up into the Gold Coast. Um, I was born on the good side, the, the blue side. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we go, we go out. Uh, Wollumbin is our dreaming, um, now named, known, um, well, that was, you know, BC, uh, before Cook. Um, it's now known as uh, Mount Warning, but we still call it Wollumbin. So it's, it's our sacred mountain. So, that's, um, you know, um, I'm a Gujan borough fellow, so Kujin is the, is the red dirt of, um, you know, which was the, you know, what spewed forth from Wollumbin back in oh, millennia, really. But yeah, beautiful farming country, um, like literally from our primary school, you could, you could literally see the ocean, um, which was, you know, as the crow flies, a few, few k's. Um, my cousins and I would try and beat the beat the bus home, you know, down the run down the hill and just run and get halfway, and oh, we didn't make it today. But um, you know, most of my childhood was spent at either at the beach, um, in the surf, uh, out fishing with Dad, who was a, not only a farmer but a professional fisherman. Um, you know, when all these young influencers complain about how tough life is. I like to remind them that my father would wake up at three o'clock in the morning so that he could go fishing and then be back, have all the fish cleaned, gutted off to the co-op, then go and do a full day on the farm. And then, if the weather was good, get up and do it all over the next day. So I, I, I think I've picked up a very strong work ethic from my family. Um, you know, as an as Aboriginal um, family, and, and we have South, South Sea Island mix, we've got a lot of Anglos um, heritage. A lot, you know, we are the Heinz variety of, of, uh, of Bundjalung uh, people, but we're, um, you know, there's a whole lot of, lot of history that um, I'm quite proud of as a, as a Gujumbara Bundjalung follower. But um, the, the main thing was that um, our aunties in particular really pushed education. Um, and my dad, and, and he's one of ten. You know, most of most of the, the that generation didn't 
make it through to tertiary education. So there was a massive push for our generation to go on to further study and to, to either get a trade or to get a degree. And I am super proud of the fact that um, two of my, my cousins are doctors and three of my nieces are doctors. So it's a you know it's been this massive push and everywhere you know and it's, it, it still annoys me when people you know talk about um, other um, groups you know the other you know whether it's people of colour whether it's people who weren't born here or um, you know, whatever the case may be it's like oh yeah you know they're lazy buggers they don't do anything they're, just, you know, they're always drinking down the park you know blah 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 so well not where I grew up so yeah. Yeah, a bit of social commentary, a little bit of <laughs> political uh, push, but yeah, that's where, that's where uh, I grew up, and it's um, yeah, it, it's like most of the East Coast. It has changed a lot. Um, most people know, would know Byron Bay, um, one of my great great. Uh, uh, trying to work out where it fits in the things. So my man, it's very very. It's like a great great grandmother. Well, maybe there's three greats in there, um, it was a Wadigo. So Wadigo's Beach is, is named after Aboriginal family. So there you go. Bunjalung. So, so farming and fishing, obviously, and, and the ocean have been really integral to your upbringing. <coughs> what is it that brings you down south to Gadigal, Gadigal country? And, well, and how are those influences influencing what you're doing here? Well, it was a change of career. <laughs> I ran away to the theatre. Uh, <laughs> don't know why I put that voice on every time I do. Plié, paribure. But you know, learning, it, it literally, it was quite weird actually. My, my, first, my first career, well, strangely, I, I still think of my first career as, as with plants because it, you know, it's always just been a part of, it was literally how I bought my first car was growing beans and peas and you know, everything else. Um, picking is not a lot of fun. And if you pick a lot of beans, you have a habit of eating a lot of beans. And let me tell you, they make you fart a lot. Um, and dogs, man, the dogs we had on the farm, they would, it's like, who did that? And, uh, Are into the beans. Yeah, beans, man, it, it, like, yeah, be, beware, I'm just telling. Um, but yeah, um, yeah I, I came to Sydney to, to go to NASDA, the National Aboriginal Islander Skills Development Association Dance College. Um, so NASA is the, is the feeder college for Bangara and, and has the alumni through NASA is phenomenal when you just look at the breadth of talent that have, has gone through there, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, and people you know, quite often, you, know, you, you have a very short shelf life in, in uh, particularly in dance, um, theatre not so much, music not so much. Um, but dance certainly, you know, you have to really <laughs> look look at where you want to want to go professionally. After the age of say 35, you might be lucky to have longevity to about 40. Um, and I didn't start in dance until I was 30, so I was already at the top, <laughs> not the top of my game, the, the top <laughs> of the ceiling of uh, being able to get there. But the the beautiful thing about cultural dance is that you know, it, it doesn't matter how old you are, you just, it's, because it, it becomes part of the fabric of, of you connecting, not only to your own culture, but to all of the other First Nations cultures that we have. Because we have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but within that, there is just a massive breadth of culture, and it's just so beautiful. And I've been really lucky to be able to travel all over Australia to different groups and different communities, do different ceremonies, learn different songs, different dances, and just be immersed in that. So, you know, that was that was the main reason for coming to Sydney. Yeah. But then, you know, as fate would have it, it, just, you know, you think you can get away from plants, but it just <laughs> went around in a big circle and put me back to where I started, which is great, because I'm, you know, I'm really loving doing what I'm doing. Mm. And so that kicked off with the role, your role at the Botanic Gardens? As, is that, was that kind of your re-entry yeah. into predominantly working with plants? It was actually, yeah. yeah. I, um, I, again, I was at the end of the, the performance cycle and didn't want to tour, didn't want to, you know, had a, um, just started a young family, just started a young family, just started a family. Um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, the, the, you know, it's time to actually get an actual job. And yeah, the job came up at the gardens and yeah, just 
perfect synergy to literally come back full circle into mm. into that space and then yeah the well the rest as they say I suppose is history I just oh, I've always loved working with plants and I've really you know it's not that I'm against exotics um, what, what I'm against is the the, the lack of um, in some ways the, the education or, or at least the the awareness of, of how impactful some of the invasive species are and can be um, and just you know look, we're at probably over the 300 mark now for invasive species. Um, thankfully, they get really quickly taken off the market. You can't buy them, but people still have them in their gardens. I, I drove past the place the other day and I forget what the botanical, you know, it's like the Mickey Mouse plant, I think they call it, like it flowers with all these red, like bright red berries. And it was like there was two massive bushes of it in the front garden of this house. Like, oh no, no. You know, asparagus ferns, one of my other painful mm. friends. Um, you know, this year on the Illawarra, we had uh, a massive Madeira vine. You know, it looks great in flower, but yeah. just the corms, there's just millions of corms that just drop and go. And, you know, the, I was at a conference not long ago, and the, the latest figures are around 13 billion that it costs the Australian economy, that weeds cost the Australian economy. And, you know, Sadly, most of those are garden escapees. So it's really just trying to get people enthused or, or, or reconnected in some ways to how we can reintroduce ecologies and, and bring back the, the native species into the spaces where they once proliferated. Yeah, and obviously, you know, we, we have seen examples in Australia of where we've, you know, tried to use technologies to control invasive species and occasionally that can go awry. I mean, the cane toad is an, an example of that. And obviously if we can try and keep those invasives out in the first instance, you know, sort of prevention rather than cure. And I think, I think one of the things that perhaps um, people might not sort of think about so much is that the array of native species that we have available to us, um, you know, you can still aspire to perhaps a cottage style garden or whatever style garden you like and still utilise native plants to achieve it. So, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, that's yeah. obviously something that we... Now, yeah. I know Liz is going to eyeball me yeah, and I say... To, I might just ask, could anyone know this plant on the, on the opening slide? Hey, 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 come on. Hands up. You, 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 you. <laughs> it's all right. No, it's not warrior greens. Come on, this is for the first choice on the, uh, on the, on the prize table. Yes? No, you can eat it. So close. It grows near the sea. Parsley. Parsley that grows near the sea. <laughs> well done. Lucky you're wearing a mask. I, I knew you said it, but it sounded like it came from somewhere else. <laughs> sea parsley. You get the first choice. <laughs> yeah, great, great flavour. Really good. Easy to grow. Give it a crack. So yeah, I'm looking at my watch and, I'm, and Liz is going to say, hey, let's get onto our five plants. Yes. So before we get onto five things, yes. we're going to talk about five plants. Although really, it's not so much about five plants, but about perhaps five categories. And, and we'll, Liz is going to throw some examples up on the screen behind us. Um, but you can just tell us about whichever thing might take your fancy. So mm. I think we should have emu bush up here at the moment, which mm. is an example of a medicinal plant. So tell us about that. Well, look, I probably should start by saying I haven't had a lot of luck with Eremophilus. Uh, they're one of my favourites. They are absolutely stunning. And there's lots of different cultivars and lots of different species now. Beautiful plant to grow. Um, the problem that I had is that even though I had raised beds in the areas that where I put the Eremophilus, the amount of rain that we got from March through to... Uh, Seems like an age, but it wasn't that long ago that it stopped raining. Um, and, and they just had wet feet for way too long, and they just did not like it. So, yeah, I lost all my emu bush, but start again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a there's a lot of um, a lot of medicinal plants. There's a lot of lot of things like um, the emu, emu bush, um, sandalwood in WA. Like there's a there's a big push. Um, and again, I'll probably get a little bit over political. There's a big push for um, you know, bush food gardens and, and um, bush medicine plants, and everybody wants to know everything about, about these species. Um, 
what I will say is that I've been in this space for a while um, and I've seen in, you know, not just non-Aboriginal people but there are some First Nations people who are coming into this space with the wrong intent. Um, it's very hard to maintain the demand um, because the supply is and you can grow, all these plants you can grow, and commercially some of them are being grown, but some of them, and a lot of them, are still wild source. So Kakadu Plum is a big example where it's been found to be a superfood and it sells for an exorbitant amount. Sandalwood's another one, it's being grown commercially in WA, but I advise you all to have a look at the, the math around how, how much sandalwood you need to get one tiny milliliter rather of sandalwood oil. So there's all of these really interesting um, uh, knock-on effects, if you will, around, particularly around bush foods and, and bush medicines that, um, you know, my advice to everyone is to, if you're interested, grow them at home. Um, there's a, uh, some of you might have heard of Gumby Gumby. So again, it's a, it's a plant that's been um, pushed as a, as a, not a cure-all, but it's certainly a very, very important medicinal plant that has had a lot of research done on it. But uh, until recently, and I know some of the, the traditional owners from the area where it grows, um, they've only just, and you couldn't really call it a win, but there's a, a company who were, um, had the copyright in on the trademark Gumby Gumby. So the traditional owners have just come out the end of that it's like mm. anyway so there's a lot of issues around the, the, in in this space and it's still you know um, I think the latest figures are around 60 million dollars per annum that the bush food industry is worth still there's only about two percent of that going to Aboriginal people and Aboriginal communities I think that's really important to think about you know what sort of um, cultural protocols do we want to be thinking about in terms of bush foods, medicinal plants. Um, I spent some time in far north Queensland and fell in love with Davidson Plum Jam. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, tart, delicious. I've, I've had a Davidson Plum at home, I think, in the many years that I had it, admittedly in a pot, which is going to be a limiting factor, but I think I might have gotten about two for it. <laughs> Certainly I wasn't going to be producing any jam from my tree, um, and a lot of that is wild. Um, harvesting up north certainly although it's there's an industry growing up around that it's mm. probably much more advanced now than when I was up there um, but yeah absolutely something to be thinking about so okay we're moving on to culture we've got a Karajong tree up there I believe all right who wants second pick on the, uh, the table of joy um, the local species of Karajong would be of course when I say local I sort of go down into the Illawarra. Hang on, hands up, come on, settle down. <laughs> yes, that lady up the back. Yes, would you like to go for double points for the botanic name? Starts with Brachychiton. Brachychiton acerifolius. It's lovely. The Illawarra flame tree, you get second pick, excellent work. Um, but yeah, interestingly, um, Popolnus, and I've forgotten, I, I should remember this, the species name, because the Karajong is actually a Sydney language word for the, well, a species of, of Karajong. Um, and there's a northern Karajong that has a, a white flower, so when you see the, the flame tree, and one of the beautiful things about the Illawarra flame tree is that it drops all of its leaves and then it's just red. And um, there's, a, there's an example of actually a couple of street trees in um, what the Thuruleans refer to as the suburb to live in in the Illawarra. Um, <laughs> but, but there are three, three streets, and I've got a photo. One of them is in, in literally just full foliage, and the other one is in full flower. And you just don't know what they're going to do. They just seem to have a mind of their own. But yeah, culturally, this, this, this plant is, um, you know, there's a lot of, you, you can strip the inner bark. Um, the, the seeds, um, that it, even though they're hairy and, and quite um, oh, hairy and scary, anyway, <laughs> um, they, um, they, if, you, if you put them in, in the fire, they, they, they don't pop like popcorn. Like when you, when you pop popcorn, if anyone's ever done it, the corn actually inverts. Goes inside yeah, out. Goes yeah. inside out. Yeah. The, with the, um, with the uh, flame tree, 
seeds, they, they actually pop out of the, um, of the, the case, shell casing. And then in, inside is this beautiful, beautiful thing. It's not a very scientific <laughs> term, but it is, it's just, they're just so nice to eat. So yeah, there's, there's a whole heap of uses around the, the cultural use of these plants. And, and obviously as a, um, you know, as, as a marker, um, plant, there's, there's some really amazing, I've been really lucky down uh, around Wagan Wagan, which is called Wagga Wagga. Um, one, of, one of my mates who, who is a cultural knowledge holder down there, and there's a, a, a beautiful um, river red gum that the ancestors started training into a, literally a woven mm. work of art. It, not many people have, have seen it, but it is phenomenal where the, the branches have literally been woven over quite a few hundred years to form this amazing shape. So, you know, things like bunya bunyas, um, Araucaria bidwillii, um, you know, homesteaders used them a lot as beacons so that people could see. And, you know, there's a lot of different plants used, obviously, for different things. Um, one of my favourite things about the, the raki chitin is the, um, you know, you can use the inner bark for fibre, but you can also use the, the um, timber as a fire drill. So you use a um, xantheria um, as the drill, and then the brachychitin as the base, and they are made very, very quickly. Um, you can make well. When I say very, very quickly, um, relatively quickly, you can make a fire. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Okay, so our next category is plants with unique germination, and this is something that often people aren't always aware of. Um, I don't know if the one we've got up here at the moment is the a fire example, but you know, often we we understand that things change rapidly after fire, um, but it's not necessarily the fire or the heat itself that might prompt the germination, but it can be the smoke. And in fact, the chemicals in the smoke hmm. that prompt um, you know, particular species to germinate. So, so unique germination is our next category. Yeah. And I think we've got a beautiful flannel flower up here. It is, that's, that's a very close close-up too. Um, Liz was telling me a story, uh, just a couple of days ago, actually. This is Liz, everybody. She's, she's put on this job, this uh, talk for you today. Um, but the um, yeah, the, the it's it's primarily the, the the smoke or the chemical in in the smoke that actually helps with the germination of the seed. Um, the, the pink flannels generally are endemic to Blue Mountains, and the, the you know the fire does does help. The fire helps actually with the seed bank, but the smoke actually helps with the germination. So. There's a whole range, and there's a lot of native uh, nurseries. There's, there's quite a few bush care groups. Um, there's uh, actually uh, Heathcote and Menai. There's a couple, there's a couple of um, community groups and community nurseries that um, actually, so they, when, when we say they, they smoke the seed, the easiest way is actually to smoke the water. So they literally have that they send the chemical from the smoke into the water and then you just water the seeds with the smoke infused water which makes it you know, a way easier process. When I was at the Botanic Gardens we would run classes with, with the, the little kids and it's way more fun to put your um, acacia seeds uh, also help with, um, with the uh, chemical from the smoke, put them in, into the, um, into the, the uh, pots and then we would Put them in a in a little uh, formation, and we'd put a upside down cardboard box on top, and then we'd use a bee smoker and we'd just pump a heap of smoke into the box to smoke the seeds. And the kids would like, then you'd take the box, like, that's way more fun than oh yeah, this water has smoke. Has smoke in it. <laughs> but um, the uh, oh, I'm trying to think when we planted it out actually, uh, 2019 we did a rooftop in Redfern, which will very soon be back open to the public now that, uh, when I say now that the pandemic has shifted, but uh, it's back again, um, it's still around. But the, uh, um, the, all, all, of the, all of the plants that are on that rooftop were sourced from um, different areas and, and the flannel flowers and again, it's, it, we all have relatively short memories. We were complaining about the, the floods, but you know, to year 2020, we had all the massive bushfires, and there was smoke all over Sydney. And the the, the smoke from those 
massive fires actually helped in the germination wow. and the, the rooftop is covered in flannel flowers all self-germinating from the seed from the previous generation that was growing so it, yeah it's re really yeah. interesting to, to see these things happening i hadn't even thought about that that you know that that's that smoke impact could be coming from a fire that's actually far away yeah. so you're not necessarily getting that you know that firebed effect but you could still could have the smoke could be having an impact yeah, quite a ways away. Hmm. Um, so our next category is food. Oh, all right. Um, Which we've touched on very briefly. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get even more political here. Um, <laughs> Microceros, Lancelot. Um, show of hands, who's read uh, Dark Emu? Excellent. Um, who is familiar with the uh, purposely constructed and um, online portal that is debunking Dark Emu. Yeah, anyway, um, I love Uncle Bruce, and I, I, I personally, I just think the work that he's done in gathering all of that research and putting it into cohesive form, I, I, I'm just, I'm, you know, I, I've had a look on that debunking thing. You should do, so do yourself a favor, you've got to have a look at it because most of the people that post, and they've literally broken it down chapter by chapter, and, it, and someone has done a critique of each chapter. And when I say someone, no one's putting their name to it. It's very, very bizarre. And Uncle Bruce is quite um, pragmatic about it. He's like, yeah, you know, I put it out there. People have a right to come back at me. That's fine. But it's like, it, it got very, very ugly there for quite a time. But the work that that um, he, and, he and many others are doing in, with Black Duck Foods. You can check them out, Black Duck Foods, um, the, down the south coast. They're doing some amazing work with our native grasses. Um, Microceros, the, the yam daisy in particular, um, Murnong. Um, there's a, 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 should I get you to point to it or should I go and point to it? Um, now this, this might, uh, the two people who've got the unfair advantage might jump <laughs> into this one. But this, uh, this one here that uh, is, is poking up above the pack. There are two of these, and it's not, uh, oh, you can't quite, I'll have to disrupt that. So this one is another one that uh, isn't used enough, in my opinion. Um, but it's not the, it's not the yam days. It's not, a, it, it's not a yam, but it has a tuber that is beautiful to eat. Um, it's actually a native parsnip. Um, and when they say native parsnip, it's like uh, our very good friend, and I'm sure he's been here to visit the Australian Museum, Sir David Attenborough. Um, and it's you know, the, uh, and I, I should really remember these quotes. I'm, I think I'm getting, it's because I'm getting older, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's all fuzzy. Um, it, and it's, and it's uh, not a callous disregard, but it's, a, it's, a, um, it, it's more a, um, uh, I won't, I'll, I'll, callous isn't quite the word, it's, it, it's, it's more jovial than that, but uh, the disregard for um, scientific accuracy. So all of those, those dead, dead guys, the, and unfortunately, not very few women botanists got their name to plants back in the early day. Um, and there were so many female botanists actually in, in this country who, who did some amazing work back, certainly in the 1800s at least, in the early 1900s, but um, one, there's, there's a, a native plant that I grow a lot of because it just looks beautiful in flower, um, the bulbun lily. Anyone familiar with the bulbun? Um, uh, yeah, bulbosa, I'm just trying to think. Bulbina, uh, Bulbina bulbosa. Bulbina. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken a while. <laughs> when you don't use them all the time, you just forget. Anyway, there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. But, the, um, but it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it, it was refer it's referred to as native celery, um, and it's um, it's got uh, native celery, native leek. Sorry, yeah, we're, we're leek. on the sea celery, but it, because it, it yeah, for all intents and purposes, when it's not flowering, it looks like a leek, but everything above ground is poisonous, so it's like okay, it looks like a leek, so we'll call it native leek, you know, and that one's native parsnip, but it's like it's literally like a white carrot, but sweeter. It is, they're stunning. Um, and when they talk, culturally, when we talk about um, yam daisy, when we talk about all of the plants where we use, eat the rhizome, the, a lot of the, the aunties in particular, they'll, they'll talk about taking the kids out. And when you find a cluster of, of yams or a cluster of, of parsnips, 
then you take the grandmothers. So the, the older ones, mm. they're the ones you take to eat. And all of the, the mums and, and the kids, you, separate, you don't separate them, but you separate them from the grandparents. And then you can go and plant them, but you plant, you've got, still got to plant them together. Don't plant them by themselves. And I think it's just a beautiful thing to, to think of it that way, rather than purely the, the scientific or the horticultural methodology mm -hmm. of, okay, we're going to take this one, this one, this one, and then we're going to go, you know, so yeah, nature doesn't work like that. It's just, you know, it's far, there's far more beauty in, in you know, the, the random displays that you see in the bush. So um, yeah, that, that's one of my favorites. It's just, whoever does take that, that one, that's just about the flower. It's a stunningly gorgeous little flower. It comes out white, but you'll, it'll take a little while. You, you'll have them in your garden, you'll think they're, they're gone, they're dead, and then you know, next season they'll just be popping up everywhere and you'll just go, yes! <laughs> and yeah, like, they're probably, you know, it'll get to be about the size of my index finger, I suppose, and, and about that thick. And they are just such a beautiful thing to eat. And there's a, there's a lot of these things around. And as I said, you know, the bush food industry is, is, is a, it, it frustrates me, but, you know, at the same time, there's no reason why we all can't grow a lot of these things at, at home in our own gardens. Mm. We just have to try to be patient and wait for it to get to grandmother stage before yes. I'm munching it down. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so the next category on our list is what in the weird? Um, and actually I was asking you about that. I was clarifying my knowledge <laughs> before we sat down about this one. So these are leafless acacias. Mm. So tell us about this weird character on the screen. Yeah, um, a lot of people are growing this. Is anyone growing this at home? It, it's, a, it's just got such a lovely form. Um, the leafless rock wattle, it, it grows over in the Kimberley, but um, they grow a lot of it in Melbourne. Um, it, it, it'll handle pretty much anything you throw at it. Um, but it, when it's not flowering, it just looks like this mass, well, the one I've got anyway. It was in, I had it in a pot and it wasn't handling it very well. And then I put it on the roof and it just went, bam. It's like, it's massive. But it looks like a big, big outcrop of coral. It just looks so stunning. But it's, um, we've got about a thousand species of acacia. Um, there's a few different leafless um, acacias, but, but by, by and large, even the leaves of like the um, acacia, um, Sophorae, Victoria, the um, uh, Floribunda, so there's just so many. So um, many, yeah. Acacia, oh, Longifolia, thank you. We got there. Um, <laughs> the local species. The, 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 the leaves are what they refer to in um, botanical terms as phyllodes. So they've, they've evolved to do, do the photosynthesis, but strictly speaking, they're not leaves. Um, similarly with the, with the leafless rock wattle, the, the stems are the phyllodes. So it, the whole plant is literally photosynthesizing. And it's, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm sure if you looked at it under a, a mm. scanning electron microscope, it would look quite something. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, just, the, just the fact that they, they're able to do what they do and, and uh, yeah, they look, look phenomenal. Um, you know, there's lots of different acacia seeds. Uh, it takes ages to get enough uh, okay, you know, wattle seed. Um, and I used to, and again, I'll put the voice on. You can't get a wattle chino from certain cafes <laughs> around Sydney, um, but uh, it's 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 the it's the flavour. And, and um, actually, down down our way, there's a little. I don't know if they still sell it, but I remember um, going to the Stanwell Park kiosk, and they had wattle seed ice cream, and mm. and the, uh, the the fellow that, that used to run it, he was very guarded about his about his recipe. And uh, anyway, I was looking everywhere, and, and um, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Olive, the Black Olive, is, a, is a, another Bundjalung follower and a mate of mine who also lives in the Illawarra. Um, I was talking to him about it one day, and, and he was like, oh, yeah, you can go to all this trouble and do this and do that. He goes, you know the easiest way to make water seed ice cream? Just get a tub of ice cream, and then just put some water seed, and you let it melt. Put the put the wattle seed in, stir it up, and put it back in the freezer. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So yeah, you know, there's. He's um, just given away some IP there. But yeah, it's really interesting. We've got yeah, we've literally got thousands of species, and, and 
I forget the number, it's something around the 80, you might even know this number, something around 85% of Australian species are only found in Australia, naturally. Mm. Obviously, you know, the, the, imagine my disappointment when I went to Nagoya Harbour to, you know, I'd just come from seeing a 1,500-year-old cherry tree up in the, this remote village to come to Nagoya Harbour and just be surrounded by eucalypts. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, a, it, it's really quite, you know, we, we've got the, the um, dendrobiums, our, our Sydney rock um, orchids, are, they're, 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 they're just stunning. And, and one, one thing that, uh, you know, they're, they're edible, they're, they're, they're beautiful, and, they, and the, the fact that they can just grow out of the sandstone and get enough yeah. nutrient and enough moisture is, is, is you know, I, well, you, it, it is weird, but you sort of think, man, how, how cool are plants they, when they can do that sort of thing? <laughs> Um, you know, the few few mates who are in, in, into orchids, and you know, they take you around in the bush, and you know you're looking around, you're looking around, and, and when they're not flowering, you know, there might be one, literally one leaf, and you just like, and and you say, oh, there's one, and it's like, and, and you say, <laughs> yeah, 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 and then you know, it's just it, That's it, a, it's amazing. Orchids are like another language. You kind of you literally need to get your eye in mm. for them, but once you do, you spot them everywhere, yeah. and they're so incredible, oh. um, and so so much variety. I yeah. mean, ones that smell like chocolate, yeah, fantastic. Um, no, there's some very weird things, and if I'm not mistaken, a phyllode is probably actually a flattened stem. Yeah, in, in fact, yeah. so that's yeah. a that's a really interesting example, um, and we've got one extra bonus category in here because we're coming up for Christmas, uh -huh. which is the Christmas tree, um, which is actually a mistletoe, which yeah. are an incredible um, category of plants, mistletoes. Yeah, we have, we have a lot of mistletoes, actually. Um, there's, anyone eats snotty gobbles? It's another little, uh, and I've just forgotten the botanic name. I should remember this. <laughs> Uh, it'll come to me. Suppressors. Uh, anyway, um, but yeah, a lot, a lot of the mistletoes you, you see them. You see them out, out in particularly in the Ukes. You like you can't miss them because they, the the birds drop them and then they'll take over and they'll they'll literally live on the host plant and do, do their thing. The um, WA Christmas tree is is something that, you know, again, um, the, the Illawarra at the moment. I was, and I was I was talking to one of the. Um, GA researchers about an upcoming story, and we're, we're talking about uh, Ceratopetalum gumnifera. <laughs> and everyone's familiar with that, I'm sure, because <laughs> this time of year it's starting to flower. And that is the New South Wales Christmas bush. It's just gorgeous. Uh, but uh, I think it's like two suburbs from where I am. So one of the uncles who lives there, I drop, drop in to see him, but literally two doors down from his house, there's a, there's a place that's got this massive Christmas bush in their front yard and every year it comes out with a sign, this is my Christmas bush, <laughs> get your own. Because <laughs> everyone, like, everyone wants to grab some. Yeah, everyone, you can imagine everyone just like, the stealth <laughs> and he's, he's got the ear up to the door. Is that someone's second too? But it is like, yeah, this, we've got some amazing trees, but this, this one in particular, um, the, we've got, uh, as I said, you know, lots of different mistletoes, but this one, um, and just by sheer coincidence, Liz doesn't know anything about this yet, but you'll have to stay tuned, and uh, whatever you're doing on December 16, for the final episode of Gardening Australia, you will get to see this plant in all its glory, um, and it'll be tied into the Christmas special, <laughs> featuring yours truly. Um, and I've, I've just... There's a, there's a media embargo on it until the 16th, obviously. But, um, <laughs> so just keep yeah, yeah, that yeah. under Keep it on the download. <laughs> All I can tell you is that this tree's in there, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I did an interview not long ago, uh, actually yesterday, I think it was, about, um, about the, that episode and about this plan and about a whole heap of other things. Because, because the, um, I got involved in a project where, which is, and, the daunting thing for me is that it's, it's going out nationally. So, you know, on the 17th, I'll, I'll, I'll give you Costa's um, email, so any, any that negative <laughs> feedback you can send to me. Um, yeah, because yeah, I was doing the interview yesterday and I was like, oh, 
yeah, but I've, I've seen the episode, it's really good. And I think, yeah, but you know, you're one person. So, you know, it's still very daunting when you're putting it out there, putting yourself out there on the national stage. So, mm. you know, it was, it was similar, similar sort of thing when I, when I was performing. People would, people would be like, oh, you know, it must be really hard when you're in a, you know, you've got a thousand people or, you know, we, we, did, we did the um, World Youth Day at, um, um, and the, the Pope was here and there's like 100,000 people. Like, yeah, hundred thousand people is nothing. Is you, you know that they're not all looking at you. But they're probably they're looking at the bloke in the white outfit over there. So it's like, yeah, we just do what we're doing. It's great. Rooms like this are daunting because, like, you know, it's very intimate. And you can see into people's yeah. eyes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'd I'd say we're probably preaching to the converted here, I'd, if we're fair. But <clears throat> I'll put out a plug for using a native Australian plant in a pot, if you like, as a Christmas tree. Um, we use our Wallamai pine. Um, and that's a, a fantastic way to, to have the Christmas spirit, but without having to chop down a pine tree that's yeah. been grown in a plantation somewhere. All right, we're gonna crack on with our five Oof. practical tips for our audience members, um, and hopefully popping up on the screen. So we're starting with disruption. So to disrupt. Yeah. Which right. is partly about the aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because of, um, of, of because I, I work with a lot of a uh, lot of landscape architects and architects and designers and on, on big big projects. So it, it's really interesting that the you know they talk about the, the design intent or the narrative and you know um, to a certain degree I suppose you know what 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 is it that you're trying to achieve um, and and I just as you said earlier you, you can have a cottage garden feel without using all of those, those you know, what traditionally would be found in those, those places. We've, we've got a, sub, a na native substitute for pretty much every exotic species you can think of. And again, you know, a lot of, lot of um, my friends who, who are into specific um, genus or, or a specific type of plant, um, succulents are a good example. You know, it, Good, good, good for them. They, they, that's what they enjoy doing, and, it, and it's great. But you know, when you go to, and I don't want to sound bad, but you, like when you go to Clark Island in the middle of Sydney Harbour, and it's covered in um, mother of millions, uh, like th this is where it becomes a problem. It's, uh, but by and large, the, the plant enthusiasts who, who are very good at what they do understand the parameters that they should work in. So. You know, these are the these are the sort of things that you, you know, you if you can think of, of ways of, of of working a little bit better, and and like the the push that I'm trying to get across now through my business is is urban biodiversity. We can't we can't halt progress. We can't stop the development of some of our. Well, I'd like to think that we could slow it down at least, or at least reintegrate. Um, you know, if you're going to if you're going to take out bushland and koala corridors and you know, it, planting 100 saplings is not the same as you know, to re, oh, sorry, I should, let me rephrase it. Planting 100 saplings to replace a 100 year old tree is not the same. So, <laughs> so, so you know, there's I think there just needs to be a lot more thought around how we move forward in, in these, particularly in green spaces, and, and what we can do. Um, which kind of brings us to, yeah, encouraging biodiversity. So um, this is this is the, the South Everly rooftop. It's, um, it looks a lot a lot different, actually. It, it, it's, it, you know, it started out as a, as a rooftop farm, as an example of, of ways that you could, you could bring um, the, that kind of um, idea into into the urban space, um, but we've moved a lot more into creating more urban biodiversity, and we we partnered with UNSW and the Landscape Architecture Foundation of America to put out a paper that I think you can read somewhere um, about the amount and and the, the number of pollinators in particular, and on any given day, or well, I think over the, the course of the project, it was like three months, so there was. You know, a day or a half day here, and there was one day where there was close to 40 different species that came and visited different flowers on the roof. Um, 
this this roof is at on the fourth floor, so it's kind of at the optimum level because it's, it's it's at the same height as all of the surrounding street trees. So the tree canopy maxes out in the urban spaces at about level four or five. Four is optimum, but you start going above five, you've got to start introducing the pollinators. So the the difficulty that any rooftop has is is the conditions and why people hadn't been doing, there's a lot of native rooftops with succulents because they're, you know, everybody wants a, um, a maintenance free garden, <laughs> whatever that means, but uh, <laughs> anyway, or, or a low maintenance garden. And as I'm sure all of you know, there is no such thing as a low maintenance garden. Um, and particularly with rooftops because the, the predominant winds here are, are from the south and when the southerly buster comes through at 90 k's an hour, it, the plants have to be tough and they have to be able to take the, the conditions. It's very hard, so we've got things like saltbush and um, the flannel flowers, there's a whole heap of stuff that's, that's growing here. We started with 30 species, we're up to close to 70 now, and it's so literally been a, a work in progress over the last three years to see what we can do, what kind of small um, microclimates, what, what kind of ecologies we can we can bring into those spaces and it's been um, did another one not long ago um, at Barangaroo um, the Barangaroo amenities building which is a roof on top of a roof so Hickson Park is the roof of the rather large erection <laughs> erected structure of a certain um, company and it's uh, so that that park is the roof of the car park and then next to so on top of that roof is an amenities block a toilet for those of you who are unfamiliar with this term um, and we, we've done the rooftop on that one and that was it was predominantly it was done as, a, as an artwork so when we designed it it's for all the people around looking down on it to see it. it when it's in flower. It does actually look like a, an art, art piece, but it's also um, for the DLP, which is the defect liability period of of uh, three months. We weren't allowed onto the roof, so we <laughs> luckily the plants that we put in and the irrigation system we put in were enough. But then it was like yeah, from a distance, it looked, oh man, look how lush it is. Look at this. But it, yeah, but from when I looked at it, all I could see was the weed. <laughs> anyway, you couldn't get on there. Yeah, but yeah. we got there eventually. But yeah, look, there's a, there's a whole lot of stuff that's, that's been done in this space, and and so this probably leads to the, to what um, what we work with. Particularly, um, there's a, another mate of mine who, who does a lot of work in Melbourne, uh, in in particularly what's referred to in the industry as green roofs, walls, and facades, the whole green infrastructure space. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff. Uh, Jungle Fire here in Sydney do a lot of work. They're doing a lot of trials with UTS around bioremediation, um, which is just a really um, fancy term for taking heavy metals and, and crap out of the soil um, or out of the air. So there's, there's got, Jungle Fire have quite a few on the M2, I think it is, that goes to North Connects, whatever that one is. Yeah, two, one. One of those M's. Yeah. Um, but they've got they've they've developed these pods that that are that literally clip into each other and they can form a massive green wall. So they've got a I think it's ten by ten and it's on the side of the of the um, of the motorway and they're they're monitoring all of the particulates and what it's taking out of the air and you know, so there's been some, there's some really cool work in this space. But when it comes to rooftops in particular, it's all about the weight. So if you've got a um, City of Melbourne are really moving forward. They've 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 done a, a full uh, study of the Melbourne CBD, and there are 50% of the buildings in Melbourne can be retrofitted with green roofs. So they're they're really you're put incentivising, um, in, in particularly in the, in the green urban greening space. They're, they're mm. doing a lot of that work, but the weight load. Um, is generally around the 900 kilogram to one ton per square meter. So if you if you just take soil, for example, soil in a cubic meter is about a ton. 
um, give or take. As soon as it's wet, it's 1.5 to 1.6. So if you want to have a metre deep on your roof, as soon as it rains, it's it already exceeds the It'll weight be in loading. your lounge room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so we we generally and this is the cool thing about natives. You need a free draining mix, so it won't retain the moisture anyway. So you you, you come up with a, a really good mix. Um, you can minimum two hundred. Um, so you automatically have brought your one ton down to two hundred kilos per square meter. And then you add all your you know your, your plant weights and all the rest of the things. You can generally come out with about three to four hundred kilos per square meter and then that'll that gives you a, a window of about half a ton per square meter for the plants as they grow mm. so yeah, there's a lot of you know, I, I certainly I'm used to growing things on the ground where it's you know, yeah when I say it's easy it's it's easier but yeah when you've got to take all these things into consideration and you know different plants it's a it's a bit of a um, misnomer that that native plants don't need nutrient different native plants need different things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everyone's now the holy trinity, the NPK, there's a whole, whole heap of things. By and large, you know, it's, it's about the nitrogen for our natives, phosphorus they're not, not, so, not so keen on. Yeah. Um, when I was at the gardens, there was a, there was a uh, um, if anyone's seen Caddy Jamora, in the, back in the early days of Caddy Jamora, they, um, the, a lot of the, the um, banksies were dying and it was, and it was, they, they, it was literally the substrate because what was there before all, all of the um, horse manure from the the police um, mountain yard the the stables are in surrey hills uh, yeah surrey hills and so they they would donate all of the horseshit <laughs> to the gardens <laughs> i think they still do actually but and it, it's great for the garden it, you know it's got a great yeah, but but that it was just really really high in in um, in phosphorus, so it was. It was uh, yeah, you need to know what you're putting in there. Yeah, so so there's a lot of lot of things to, to think about with, and the the way I get around it, particularly is uh, using nitrogen fixes. Which is, so um, Indigofera australis, the native indigo. Nice segue. Yeah, beautiful beautiful plant. Um, but yeah, at, literally converting atmospheric nitrogen into nitrogen that can be used by the plant. So um, it happens naturally, you know. Like thunderstorms, it'll 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 happen. It'll come down with the rain. So there's a there's a whole heap of things. That, but nitrogen fixes in particular, I just you know we've got quite a few natives that do that. Um, fortunately, Indigofera australis is one of the most beautiful plants that does it. And it's really easy to grow. So it's a really nice plant to mm. put around to do that sort of thing. Um, there's quite a few others. Clover will do the same thing, but clover turns out to be a pain in the ass um, if you've got too, too much of it doing mm. what it's not supposed to do. Um, but a good friend and mentor of mine, um, who uh, I used to work with the gardens, he's, he he uh, told me about a little trick with, with uh, sulphate of ammonia, and it, it's it's a it's it's a dance really, because <laughs> you really have to be, and I've done it a few times, and I've only had one really really successful attempt, but it works perfectly. If you but it's it's just it's just so so tricky. You've got to. Take your sulphate of ammonia and, and spread, spread it, it across your your clover, and then you'll watch it as the the sun hits it. It'll you'll see the, the sulphate will will start to um, liquid liquefy, and it'll it'll literally just fry the the, um, the clover. But then you've got to wash it in, and but you've got to like picking that time is the tricky bit. But as soon as you water it in, all your clover's dead and your grass goes boom. And you've supercharged yeah, the soil. Yeah, and supercharged, it's so cool. But Fantastic. Yeah, but you've got to really be on the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got it, and you need to practice your spreading skills, obviously. Yeah, well. <laughs> need some fluid movement there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, no, that, that was a perfect segue. And we're into our final tip here, which is about not giving up. Yeah. 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 yeah, and this is an example from your. Yes, this is from my own private <laughs> your collection. Your garden. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, uh, it was interesting because the uh, I, I just sort of have a little backward step to the soils. I well, I, I suppose I would refer to myself as a lazy gardener. I, I did a I, I wrote an article for the, the Gardening Australia magazine ages ago, and it was like you know a lot of my mates who were chefs. 
they rarely cook at home. They just they've had enough of cooking all during the day. But one thing, like when I get home, I I, I actually go into the garden because it it, mm. it actually helps me to well, forget about the worries of the day. Um, but this this plant was actually in a um, it was actually in a one fifty mil pot actually, and a good mate of mine, Peter Dore, who works for Community Greening, um, check out their programs. They are doing fantastic work all over New South Wales. Um, but uh, Pete, I, I rang Pete because another uh, group in Redfern were looking to do a, a garden in the, in the back and they're a not-for-profit, they're a community organ. I said, look, um, leave it with me, I'll get you some plants. Anyway, Pete dropped these plants off and as you do in the, you know, what we, we all should encourage more of, he gave me two trays of, of plants and one of them um, was this calistamine. Um, in a, it was a, there were two of them actually. And um, I plonked them in the, in the back garden and this one had actually blown over so it was like it fallen over on its side, I'd forgotten all about it. The other ones went up to Redfern. Pete, I gave Pete a, um, a tray of um, rainforest plum actually um, <laughs> to take with him to hand out and do whatever he had to do with them. Um, but this one had blown over and, and it, it, like probably a week later it had been lying on its side, hadn't had any water and it was fried and I was like, oh no. Uh, anyway, I was like, I could have just chucked it, but it, 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 no, it looks sad, have a crack. So I repotted it, put it in a bigger pot, hit it with some sea salt, and I just put it in a, a little bit more of a shaded area, and like I could see it. Every time I went to the garden, I could see it. So I just kept watering it, kept mm -hmm. tending it, and then if we go to the next slide, I was just super excited when I came out, <laughs> and I was just sort of like, ah, look at this. So yes, in, uh, in, a, in a couple of months' time, it'll be back to its former glory. But it, it's, it, that's one of the most beautiful things about plants and, and about nature in general, really, is just those, those little things that just get you so excited. The, um, uh, we're, we're, we're at a, uh, um, we very rarely get together, all the presenters at, at Gardening Australia, and we're, we're lucky enough um, a couple of weeks ago to all converge in, in, uh, in Melbourne to um, do, some, do some filming and some professional development, team building. Um, and the producers were, were handing out some merch because like we don't get a lot of stuff on the ABC. So we were excited. And one of the new Gardening Australia t-shirts that you can buy for Christmas this year from a good ABC shop, well they're all good, they're, they're, um, is uh, uh, I'm so excited about gardening that I wet my plants. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I have that shirt but it's only in a medium so I've got to get it. <laughs> I've got to give it to somebody <laughs> as a Christmas present, but um, but yeah, like it's it's one of the coolest things about about being being in the garden or, or growing plants. And the power of regeneration, I yeah. guess, and the ability to seemingly come back from the dead. And I think particularly with native plants, I have a not dissimilar story about a lily pilly in in our garden at home, our previous place that right on the front nature strip. And one day I just noticed, my gosh, it's looking really really terrible. It's like, oh, is this the end of it? And it's a well-established plant, so it was really disappointing. It's part of a screen and a hedge in the front. We contacted a friend of ours, um, Rick the Tree Man, um, and asked his advice, and he was like, you know what? Just take that thing off at halfway, and you never know. It might come back. So I was out there hacking, took it out, 50% of the plant gone, but it absolutely came back, and I was so happy. It was such a nice feeling to save it um, and to have it recover. Um, so I guess recapping on our five things, so we're disrupting, so we're avoiding monocultures and, and that's knocking on to our second thing which is about encouraging biodiversity and so by having a diverse planting we're encouraging obviously biodiversity in terms of um, insects and birds and things as well. Yep. We're thinking about soils and you've talked a lot about rooftop gardens which are absolutely fantastic but equally can go to a no-dig garden in your backyard, you know if you're in an area with a poor soil that doesn't mean you're, you're limited to plants that can cope in that, in that scenario. We're nitrogen fixes, obviously, so they're our friends to, to make those soils even better. And we're not giving up. And if we're seeing a plant that's struggling a bit, we're going to make sure we give it some love and see if we can bring it back from the dead. Because yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely doable. So yeah. 
I guess they're our takeaway messages for the day. We're, we're definitely pushing on the time. Um, so look, I think we're going to wrap it up for in here, but, but Clarence will be with us and we're, we're going to pop out and have some, some scones. So I'm, I think we can, I'm sure we can field a couple of extra questions outside. Um, but we do have a gift for each of you. And well, and we've got some people who've got first dibs on the plant. So we've got a tube stock for each of you to take away. We're going to pop them into um, a, a big brown paper bag, which is about um, protecting our collections actually in this building from anything that might be in the soil. So we'd just ask you to keep them inside the inside the bag. Um, so plants are here. Scones and tea are in the Hinsey Hall just outside. Um, I'll get in trouble from Liz if I don't tell you that five things. This series is taking a break in January, um, but is back in February. Do we have a slide for this? Yeah, Dr. Michael Batley, um, talking about native bees. He will be loving your rooftop gardens. And I'm really keen to come to this one, actually. <laughs> um, so Michael is a rock star in the bee, in bee taxonomy, um, and he'll be in conversation with a native bee specialist, Emily. Is it Emily yep. Vanderstock? Um, so that'll be happening in February. Um, so please feel free to join us again if you have time in February. Yeah, thank you very much. And please join me in thanking Clarence. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.